Good morning, class. Uh, I just wanted to spend the first couple minutes clearing up three issues, none as a major conceptual issue, but we like to focus on details and get them right, uh, get them correct uh, here as well. Firstly, I, uh, I misdrew a reaction last time that described why RNA is alkali labile, i.e., if we have high pH, we call that an alkali pH, or an alkaline pH, actually, to use the adjective. And we said that uh, hydroxyl groups can cause the cleavage of the phosphodiester bonds of RNA but not DNA. And the way I describe that happening is that the alkali group causes the formation of this five-membered ring right here, two carbons, two oxygens, and a phosphate, and that resolves eventually to this, where there's no longer any connection with the uh, ribonucleoside uh, monophosphate below. And I drew it like this, without a, an oxygen. And that's a no-no, because in fact, in truth, um, and as many of you picked up, this reverts to a two-prime hydroxyl. So please note, there was a mistake there. Um, there's also a couple other mistakes. For example, in the textbook, it's a, it gives you the impression that when you polymerize nucleic acids, you use uh, a monophosphate to do so. And if you listen to my lecture last time, that doesn't make any sense, because you need to invest the energy of a triphosphate in order to create enough energy, to generate enough energy for the polymerization. The textbook is incorrect there. The textbooks are written by people, for better or worse, and as such, like everything else, they are... Uh, mortal and fallible. So the truth of the matter is when you're polymerizing DNA or RNA, you need one of the four ribonucleoside uh, or deoxyribonucleoside triphosphates in order to donate the energy that makes possible this polymerization. And uh, please note that as a mistake in the book. Recall, as I said last time, the fact that ATP is, is really the, the currency of energy in the cell and that its energy is stored in this coiled up in this pent-up spring, where the elect mutual electrostatic repulsion between the, the three uh, negatively charged phosphates carries within it enormous potential energy. And some of that potential energy can be realized during the synthesis of polymerization of nucleic acids by cleaving this bond here. One can also generate potential energy by cleaving this bond here. This is the alpha, the beta, and the gamma phosphate. And cleavage of either can create substantial energy which in turn can, as we'll indicate shortly, be invested in other reactions, the reaction of polymerization. A second point I'd like to make to you is the following, and it's, you'd say it's kind of a coincidence. The currency of energy in the cell is ATP, adenosine triphosphate. We see its structure here. And this happens to be one of the four precursors of the RNA. So the same molecule is used in these two different ostensibly unrelated applications. One, to polymerize, to make RNA, where genetic information is stored and conveyed. Or, alternatively, it's used here in this context um, in order to uh, serve as a currency for, for energy. High energy is ATP, ADP with a little lower energy, AMP, monophosphate, with even lower energy. And you might ask yourself, scratch your head and say, why is the same molecule used for these two different things? In fact, there are yet other applications of uh, these ribonucleosides, which also seem to be unrelated to 
the storage or the conveyance of genetic information. And it is believed, probably correctly, that the reason why the same molecule is used for these totally different applications is that early in the uh, evolution of life on this planet, there really were a rather small number of biological molecules that existed. Indeed, as we'll mention again later, it's probably the case that the first organisms didn't use DNA as genomes. It's an article of faith with us that one stores genetic information in DNA molecules, and I implied that quite explicitly last time. But the fact of the matter is, it's probably the case that the first organisms, the first precellular life forms, used RNA as the genetic material, RNA to store things, replicating RNA via double-stranded RNA molecules as a way of um, archiving genetic information. And only later during the evolution of life on this planet, when that later was, we can't tell, but it could have been 100 or 200 million years later. Obviously, if we're talking about the uh, origin of life as between 3.3 and 3.5 billion years ago, we can't really localize that in time very well. But only later did DNA be, uh, was DNA assigned the job of storing, in a stable fashion, genetic information. And as a consequence, we come to realize as well yet another discovery, which is that all the catalysts that we're going to talk about today, the enzymes as we call them, modern, almost all modern day enzymes are proteins. And we talked about them briefly before. But over the last 15 years, 20 years, there's been the discovery that certain RNA molecules also possess the ability to catalyze certain kinds of reactions. Uh, when I was taking biochemistry, if, you, if somebody would have told me that, I would have, I would have called the psychiatric ward. Uh, because that was such an outlandish idea. How can an RNA molecule catalyze a biochemical reaction? It doesn't have all the side groups that one needs to create the catalytic sites for reactions. But we now realize, on the basis of research, which actually led to a Nobel Prize being awarded about uh, five years ago, that RNA molecules are able to catalyze certain kinds of reactions, and that begins to give us an insight into how life originated on this planet because RNA molecules may have stored genetic information, as I said before. RNA molecules or their precursors, like ATP, may have been the currency for storing um, uh, high energy uh, bonds, as is indicated here. And RNA molecules may well have been the first enzymes to catalyze many of the reactions in the most primitive life forms that first um, existed on this planet. And therefore, what I'm saying is that as life developed, in the first 100 or 200 million years, who knows how long it took. Gradually, DNA took over the job of storing information from RNA, and gradually, proteins took over the uh, job of, uh, <coughs> of mediating catalysis, of acting as enzymes, to taking the job over from RNA molecules. Today, there are certain vestigial uh, biochemical reactions, which we believe are relics, echoes of the beginning of life on Earth, which are still mediated by RNA catalysts. We think that they're throwbacks to these very early um, steps, maybe even in precellular life form, where RNA was uh, delegated with the task of, of acting as a catalyst. We're going to focus a lot today on the whole issue of biochemical reactions and the issue of energy. And uh, this gets us into the uh, realization that there really are two kinds of biochemical reactions. Some of you may have learned this a long time ago. Either exergonic reactions that release energy, that produce energy as they're produced, as they proceed, 
or conversely, endergonic reactions, which um, require an investment of energy in order to move forward. So here, obviously, if this is a, if this is a high energy state, and we're talking about the free energy of the system, which is one way to depict in thermodynamic um, language how much energy is in a molecule. If we go from a high energy state to a low energy state, then what we, we can draw this like this, and we can realize that in order to conserve energy, the energy that was inherent in this molecule, the high potential energy, is released as this ball or this molecule rolls down the hill, and therefore the reaction yields energy, it's exergonic, and conversely, if we want this energy to proceed, we need to invest, excuse me, if we want this reaction to proceed, we need to invest free energy in order to make it happen. The free energy happens to be more often than not in the form of chemical bonds, i.e. Uh, energy that can be invested, for example, by taking advantage of the potential energy stored in these uh, uh, phosphodiester, um, in these phosphate-phosphate linkages indicated right here. Here, by the way, is a space-filling model of ATP, just uh, for, your, for your information. That's the way it would actually look in life, and this is the way we, we actually draw it. Now, having said that, if we look at the, the, the free energy uh, profile of uh, various um, uh, biochemical uh, changes, then we can depict them once again in this very schematic way here. And by the way, uh, free energy um, is called... Uh, is, is called G, the Gibbs free energy, after uh, Josiah Gibbs, who was a thermodynamic whiz in the 19th century at Yale in New Haven. And here what we see is that the change in free energy between the reactants and the products is given by delta G. So by definition, we start out the reaction with reactants, and we end up at the end of the reaction with products. And overall, there, if the reaction is exergonic and will proceed forward, it releases energy, and the, release, the net release of energy is indicated here by delta G. But more often than not, biochemical reactions that are energetically favored, that are exergonic, actually can't happen spontaneously. They don't happen spontaneously because, for various reasons, they have to pass through an intermediate state, which actually represents a much higher uh, free energy than, than the initial reactants possess. And this higher free energy that they need to acquire in order to move over the hill and down into the valley is called the energy of activation, the activation energy. And therefore, if I were to supply these reactants with energy, for instance, let's say I were to heat up these reactants and therefore give them a high degree of thermal energy, which they might be able to use to move up to this high energy state. I, gave, I supplied them with free energy by giving them uh, heat. Then they might be able to move up to here and then roll down the hill. But in the absence of actually actively intervening and supplying with them, them that energy, they'll remain right here, and they may remain right, right there for a million years. Even though, in principle, if they were to reach down here, they would be much happier in terms of reaching a much lower energy state. To state the obvious, uh, all these kinds of reactions wish to, stay, wish to reach the lowest energy state possible. But in real time, it can't happen if there is a high energy of activation. Now, what do enzymes do? As always, I'm glad I asked that question. Uh, what they do is they lower the energy of activation. And this is, in one sense, obvious, and in one sense, it's subtle. 
because enzymes have no effect on the free energy state of the reactants. They have no effect on the free energy of the products. All they do is to lower the hump. And they may lower it very substantially. And because they lower it substantially, it might be that these, some of the reactants here, may just through a chance acquisition of thermal energy be able to move over the much lowered hump and move down into this state right here. Now, the actual um, uh, difference in, in, in the Gibbs free energy is totally unaffected. All that happens is that the enzyme, by lowering the energy of activation, make this possible in real time. The fact is that ultimately, um, if we, one were to, um, to plot many kinds of reactions, many reactions, as is indicated here, have a very high activation energy, and therefore we look at like this. But there could be other reactions which might have an activation energy that looks like this. Almost nothing at all. And these reactions could happen spontaneously in, um, at room temperature in the absence of any intervention by a, um, an enzyme. For example, let's say we're talking about a carboxyl group which discharges a proton. We've talked about that already. Well, that reaction happens spontaneously at room temperature. It doesn't need an enzyme to make it happen. It can happen because there's essentially no energy of activation. But the great majority of biochemical reactions do have such a, uh, an activation energy and therefore do require a lowering like this in order to take place. Now, let's imagine other, other versions of the, um, of the energy profile of a reaction. And keep in mind what I'm showing here on the abscissa is just the course of the reaction. You could imagine, I'm not really plotting time, I'm just talking about a situation where to the left the reaction hasn't happened, and to the right it has happened. Let's imagine, uh, can you see this over there? Then I won't write over there. I won't write. Huh. All right, let's see if this works. Boy, here we are in the 21st century. We still haven't worked this out. Okay, let's, let's re, you, you can, everybody can see this right here, right? Okay, so look, let's imagine we have a reaction that looks like this. A reaction profile that looks like this, where these two energies are actually equivalent. Okay, I, I've tried to draw them on, on, well, they're not exactly, but they're pretty much on exactly the same level. And let's say we start out with a large number of molecules right over here. Now, if there were an enzyme around, the enzyme might lower the uh, activation energy and in so doing, make it possible for molecules to, to tunnel through this hill and move over to here. The fact that when a molecule gets over here, it has the same free energy as over there, means that the, the catalyst may, in principle, also facilitate a back reaction. What do I mean by a back reaction? I mean going in exactly the opposite direction. And so once molecules over here are formed, the, the uh, energy-lowering effects of the enzyme may allow them to move in both directions. And therefore, what we will have is ultimately the establishment of an equilibrium. 
if these two uh, energy states are equivalent, then I will tell you 50% of the molecules end up here and 50% of the molecules end up here. And here we're beginning now to wrestle between, with two different independent concepts, the rate of the reaction and the equilibrium state of the reaction. Note that the enzyme has no effect whatsoever on the equilibrium state. If these two are at equal free energies, the equilibrium state, whether the energy uh, barrier is this high or whether it's this high, is irrelevant. The fact is, if the, energy, if the enzyme makes possible this motion back and forth, the ultimate equilibrium state will be 50% of the molecules here and 50% of the molecules there. And therefore, the enzyme really only affects the rate at which the reaction takes place. Will it happen in a microsecond, or will it happen in a day, or will it happen in a million years? The enzyme has no effect whatsoever on the ultimate end product, which in this case is the equilibrium. Of course, and there is a, there is a simple uh, um, uh, mathematic formalism which relates the difference in free energies with uh, the, uh, the, the equilibrium. Here, we might have a situation where 80% of the molecules end up at equilibrium over here and 20% end up here. Or we might end up as a state where 99.9% .9 of the molecules end up here and 0.1% uh, uh, of the molecules end up here. But that ultimate equilibrium state is in no way influenced by the enzyme. They just make it happen in real time. And therefore, to repeat and echo a point I made last time, if most biochemical reactions are to occur in real time, i.e. in the order of seconds or minutes, an enzyme has to be around to make sure they happen. In the absence of such an enzyme, of its intermediation, it, it just won't happen in real time, even though, in principle, it's energetically favored. So let's just keep that very much in mind in, in, the, in the course of the discussions that happen. And let's just begin now to look at um, an important uh, energy generating reaction in the cell which is called glycolysis. We already know the, the prefix glyco. Glyco refers to sugar. And lysis, L-Y-S-I-S, refers to the breakdown of a certain compound. I am not going to ask you, nor is anyone else in this room going to ask you to memorize this sequence of reactions. But I'd like you to look at it and see what take-home lessons we can distill out of that what wisdom we can learn from looking at such a complex series of reactions. Perhaps the first thing we can learn is that when we think about biochemical reactions, we don't think of them as happening in isolation. Here I'm talking about, uh, for example, in this case, I could be talking about A plus B going to C plus D. And there might be a back reaction to, re to reach equilibrium. And we're just isolating that simple reaction from all others around it. But in the real world, in living cells, most reactions are parts of very long uh, pathways, where each of these steps here indicates one of the others, one, a step in the pathway. What we're interested in here is how glucose, which I advertised uh, two lectures ago as being an important energy source, is actually broken down. How does the cell harvest the energy which is inherent in glucose in order to uh, generate, among other things, ATP, which we've said repeatedly, is the energy currency. ATP is used by hundreds of different biochemical reactions in order to make them happen. These other biochemical reactions are endergonic. They require the investment of energy, 
and almost invariably, but not invariably, but almost invariably, the cell will grab hold of an ATP molecule, break it down, usually to AMP or ADP, and then utilize the energy which derives from breaking down ATP, it will invest that energy in an endergonic reaction, which in the otherwise would not happen. So here we, we reach uh, the idea that perhaps by investing energy in, in a reaction, it, the equilibrium is shifted. Because by investing energy, actually the cell is able to lower the, uh, the free energy state between these two. And that makes it possible for the equilibrium to be much more favored. Let's look at this, this uh, glycolytic pathway. Glycolytic refers, obviously, to glycolysis. And here we start out with glucose. We're drawing it out flat rather than the circular structure we talked about last time. And let's look at what happens here. Again, not because anybody wants you to, to um, memorize this, but because some of the details are in themselves very illustrative. The goal of this exercise is to create ATP for the cell. But the first step in the reaction is actually totally counterproductive. Look at the first thing that happens. The first thing that happens is that the cell invests an ATP molecule to make glucose 6-phosphate. I've advertised the, the goal of this is being to generate ATP from ADP, from adenosine diphosphate. But the first thing we go here is we don't, this is an endergonic reaction in which the cell invests energy to create this molecule here. So this doesn't make sense, but ostensibly it must make sense at one level or another because you and I, we're all here, and everybody in this room, at least this moment, is metabolically active. All right, so we got this molecule here, glucose 6-phosphate, and this can isomerize. You see, uh, here's glucose 6-phosphate, fructose 6-phosphate. And the fact of the matter is there's no oxidation reduction reactions here. It's just an isomerization. And this molecule and this molecule are virtually in the same free energy state. It happens to be the case that their profile will look very much like the one I drew you before. Their energy profile will look like this. And one needs an enzyme to lower it. But there's no energy that needs to be invested in, in converting one to the other because they're very similar molecules and therefore in comparable free energy states. Now look at the th next step. The next step is, again, an ostensibly total, totally counterproductive way of generating energy because, once again, ATP, the, the, the gamma phosphate, is in, its energy is invested in creating a diphosphorylated hexose, fructose 1,6-diphosphate, where the numbers refer, obviously, to the, the, the identities of the carbon. And now we have a diphosphorylated uh, fructose molecule. And so here, here you can actually see what the three-dimensional... Uh, what we, what we imagine closer to what the three-dimensional structures of these molecules look like. Um, and, and we don't have to, we shouldn't focus this time on whether it's this or this. For all practical purposes, let's just focus on this pathway here. And here, for the first time, what, we not, what now happens is that this hexose is broken down into two trioses, i.e. into two three-carbon sugars. And this is a slightly exergonic reaction. It yields it happens without the investment of energy, and there's an enzyme, once again, that's required in order to catalyze it. But let's be really clear now. Now we have to follow the fate of two molecules, the first triose and the second triose. They have different names, but we're not going to focus on the names. 
One thing you notice about these triosos is that they're re readily interconvertible. Once again, we can imagine we have a situation that looks like this. These are flipping back and forth. And therefore, for all practical purposes from our point of view, these two are equivalent because they can be exchanged virtually instantaneously one with the other. Now, so far, we've actually expended energy. We haven't, we haven't harvested energy. But keep in mind the old economic dictum. You have to invest money to make money. And that's what's going on here. The first thing happens is we have an oxidation reaction. What's an oxidation reaction? We want to strip some electrons, a pair of electrons, off of this particular um, uh, triose, the three-carbon sugar. And by stripping off a pair of electrons, we donate the electrons from NAD plus to NADH. And here, these structures are given in your book. But NADH, it turns out, is uh, the electrons are pulled away from the triose, a pair, and they're used to reduce NAD to NADH. Keep in mind that in an oxidation reaction, one molecule that's being oxidized is deprived, is denied a pair of electrons. The other molecule that's being reduced, in this case NAD, acquires a pair of electrons. And you can focus, if you want, about the, the charge of these molecules, one or the other. But keep in mind that in these oxidation reduction reactions, whether it's plus charge or minus charge is, ir is irrelevant. The real name of the game is the electrons. Forget about the protons, whether it has a plus charge or it's neutral. The real name of the game here is that two electrons are being used to reduce this molecule to this. By the way, third mistake I forgot to tell you before. There's a double bond in one of the pyrimidines in the book that doesn't make any sense. Whoever finds it gets a prize, but no one's figured out what the prize is yet. Okay, so, um, so here, this double bond gets reduced. You see the difference between this and this over here? And this NADH, it turns out, is a high-energy molecule. The street value of NADH is three ATPs, i.e., in the mitochondria, NADH can be used to generate three ATPs, and that's worth something. So NADH on its own is a high-energy molecule. It can't be used for that many things, but it can be pulled into the mitochondria where it's converted to three ATPs. So we say, well, we're starting to make some money out of this investment because we've made, in fact, two, uh, we've made um, these uh, ATP, we've made these NADHs. See right here? Why do we say two NADHs? Because each of, there's two trioses we're working with, and each one of the trioses gives you an NADH. So everything that's going on after this, starting from the top here, is now doubled because we're, we're looking at the parallel behaviors of two identical three-carbon sugars. So here, we've uh, so far generated, in principle, six ATPs. How much did we invest already up to this point? Two. We invested two, but we've harvested six. Already, we're starting to make a little money because I told you the street value of an NADH is three ATPs on the black market. Okay, so what happens next? Next is another good thing. Each of the trioses, um, one can actually cause each of the trioses to generate an, an, an ATP molecule from an ADP. What happens here? It turns out that this phosphate over here is actually in a pretty high energy state, in no small part because of electron negative-negative uh, repulsion. And by stripping this phosphate off, this high energy phosphate, 
stripped off of this molecule here, whose name we will ignore, allows us to phosphorylate an ATP. And since there's two, two trioses being converted, we're going to get two ATPs. So in effect, now we're actually ahead. We started out investing two. We got six back from the NADHs. And we're getting two more back here. So we've made two ATPs. This is a good thing. Keep in mind, ADP is lower energy. ATP is a high, high energy. Once again, we have a, an isomerization where these two molecules are at comparable states here and here, where the phosphate is just uh, jumps over to this state. And this hydrolyzes uh, spontaneously. And we get this molecule right over here, phosphoenol py pyruvate at the end. And once again, we harvest two ATPs, one ATP from each of the trioses. And we end up at the end of this reaction with pyru pyruvate. And you'll say, this is terrific, because we invested two ATPs. We harvested four, plus we got uh, uh, six from the NADHs, right? Two NADHs. Each NADH gives us three each. So let's do the arithmetic. How much did we? Let's do the balance sheet. We invested, to begin with, with the, with the one glucose. We invested two ATPs. That was early on. Then the return was first two uh, NADHs, which I've told you equals six ATPs, because an NADH is worth three ATPs. This is so far good. And now we've gotten, subsequently, we made four ATPs, so that the, the net yield looks pretty useful. Four, a six plus four is 10, minus two. A profit of eight ATPs from one glucose molecule. This is terrific, you may say. Ah, but there's a rub. There's a catch. If glycolysis is um, occurring in the absence of oxygen, in the absence of oxygen, if that happens, then we have a problem here. Because the only way that these NADHs can generate ATP is if there's oxygen around to take these electron pairs and use them to reduce an oxygen molecule. That is, by the way, part of the reason we breathe. Keep in mind that when you generate an NADH from an NAD molecule, you need to regenerate the NAD. You can't just accumulate more and more NADHs. You need to regenerate the AD, NAD. And therefore, this NADH, with their electron pairs, they, the electron pairs have somehow to be disposed of. You have to regenerate NAD. You can't just make more and more and more of this. So how do cells get rid of it? Well, how they get rid of it is 